0: Let's open to Genesis chapter 1. If I were to ask you, um, tell me the name of a person who is known internationally as one who holds to the theory of evolution. That's what I call it, the theory of evolution. You would probably say Richard Dawkins. You've heard of Richard Dawkins, right? Richard Dawkins well known, has written many books, appeared on TV. He has made himself known. But I'm guessing that many of you are probably not familiar with the name Carl Sagan. How many of you know the name Carl Sagan? When I was a kid, I heard that name quite a bit. Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. I used to call him Carl Pagan. I remember that. Probably the most well-known proponent of the theory of evolution in the 20th century, at least in the late 20th century. He had a TV show that had high ratings. He called it Cosmos. The word is actually Cosmos, but he said Cosmos. I'll go with his pronunciation. In every episode, he made a statement at the beginning of that show, and in the background, you would see, there would be uh, waves crashing, you'd see waves crashing on the TV show, in the introduction to the show, and you would see uh, crashing on this beautiful shore, beautiful nature, mountainous background, and this is the kind of scenery you would see, and you would hear uh, majestic, majestic music playing in the background, and Carl Sagan had this Theatrical type voice for for a excuse me for an evolutionist yes I we'll talk about this in a minute he had this theatrical voice somebody told me that most scientists are very boring people and evolutionists are very boring people and they didn't like people at all but he had a theatrical voice and he said this statement every single show he said this in his own theatrical voice he said the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. The, in other words, we think about the cosmos, the world is the cosmos. We think about this, it stirs us, he said. There is a tingling in the spine, as you consider the cosmos, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory, a falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. Now, when you see this, it all sounds and looks very worshipful, uh, the, the scenery, the music, the rich tones of Carl Sagan's voice, the statement itself sounds like you're in a worship service at church with Carl Sagan as the worship leader. And that's because for Carl Sagan, the universe was God. That was the end of it. And the theory of evolution was a religion to him. And he even said this, think about this statement, it's perfectly possible that the universe is infinitely old and therefore uncaused. In other words... It's possible that no one caused the universe, brought it into existence, and it's possible that it's infinite. And So Carl Sagan gives the attributes that belong only to God to the universe. He is about the creation, not the creator. And there are many people who feel this way. There are many professing believers who fall into the same trap on a different level. And remind me of Romans 1.25 which speaks to people who exchange the truth of God for a lie, and what did they do? They worshipped and served the creature. They worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. You have two things, the creation and the creator. They're serving the creation. Now, our subject tonight is not evolution or evolutionism. We'll get to that later. Our subject is not the lack of compatibility with evolution with Genesis Genesis chapter 1. We'll get to that another time. Genesis 1 concerns two subjects the Creator and His creation. But the primary subject, overwhelmingly, is the Creator. That's what you need to understand tonight. This is the subject that we're interested in, the Creator. And without Him, there would be no creation, and we want to worship and serve the Creator, not the creation. Now, unfortunately, Genesis 1 has been so mismanaged, so misdirected, so misinterpreted, that the God of creation has been moved from His proper place Of glory to the background. It's been shoved to the background. Other issues are portrayed as more important depending on the agenda of the speaker, the preacher, or the lecturer, but let me tell you Genesis 1 is primarily about God himself. That's what we need to understand first of all in Genesis chapter 1. On Wednesday night in our business meeting, Jimmy Wiggum uh, talked about a high view of God. He spoke about our stance as a church on the high view of God. We view him as one who is high and lifted up. I never get tired of saying that phrase. Genesis 1 sets the tone throughout the Bible for a high and lofty view of God. Notice his name. Stephen just read the chapter. His name, God, the name God, is mentioned 32 times in 31 verses in chapter 1. 32 times. Again and again, it says God, God. Technically, this section runs through chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 1 all the way to 2, 3, in which case the count becomes 35 times. If you include the personal pronouns, him, he, us. In relationship to God, the number climbs to more than 40. Look at chapter 1 quickly with me. I won't say all these verses, but for example, verse 1, in the beginning, God. Verse 3, then God said. Verse 4, God saw. Verse 5, God. Verse 6, then God. Verse 7, God. Verse 8, God. Verse 9, then God. Verse 10, God. Verse 11, God. Verse 14, then God. Verse 16, God. Verse 17, God. Verse 20, then God. Verse 21, God. Verse 22, God blessed. Verse 24, then God. Verse 25, God. Verse 26, then God. Verse 27, God. Verse 28, God. Verse 29, then God. Verse 31, God. Now, you say, that is highly, it's highly redundant. Is that really necessary? Yes, it is necessary to be redundant like that. Genesis 1 goes to great length to enable us to see that the world owes existence, its existence to God and God alone. And we need to see that. We need to understand that. Now, what's interesting is, is every time that the word God is used in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, the Hebrew word is the same. It's the word Elohim. Now, you've all heard the word Elohim. Elohim, somewhere along the line, even by accident, this is our creator God. Now, I do want you to know, because someone will probably say, why didn't you say this, that Elohim can be used of false gods also. It depends on the context. That word can be for either what—either God or false gods. In Genesis 1 context, it's clearly, clearly referring to the Lord God, okay? To, referring to God of creation. And if you, go, if you go to chapter 2, verse 4, to further define this word, It says in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account. That is what happened in chapter 1. This is the account of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, made the earth and the heaven. And so we now know for sure who this is. This is Yahweh. This is the Lord, our God. Here in Genesis 1, Elohim is simply the ordinary word for God. It's not God's personal name. That would be Yahweh. But it often acts as a proper name. The word Elohim is plural. And so it's and when it's connected to a singular verb as it is here, it has to do its references to the one true God. So why is this generic name Elohim used throughout Genesis 1 all the way to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, and not Yahweh? It's because Genesis 1 has to do with the whole creation. The creation. And Elohim fits this description best because... He's sovereign over all creation. And Yahweh has to do with the personal name of God, the personal God of Israel. But the point I want to make is this, that God is the primary subject of Genesis. That's what we need to understand first and foremost. Why is that important? Because the entire creation exists for the purpose of recognizing who God is and glorifying Him for who He is. Now, in the final book of Revelation, in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says... That and I don't think I have these verses on your notes. If you didn't get notes, they were in the back in the podium that Ken started that tradition. Thank you for that tradition, Ken. It says in Revelation 4, the elders fall down before him, before God who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will say, worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and they were created. Now, Genesis 1 gives the proper place to the God of creation. Now, people don't do that. They often don't do that as they talk about Genesis 1. The last thing you do is God, you give God his proper place. Genesis 1 gives God, the God of creation his rightful place. And the final book of Revelation gives God his rightful praise. And you see this all through the Bible that, the God, that God is the main subject. He's always the main subject. Now, over the next couple of weeks, I want to state several truths concerning the God of creation from Genesis 1 as we look into this historical account. This is an historical account. First of all, I want you to know that he is the eternal God. He's the eternal God. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, the word beginning indicates the first phase of a step. It's the beginning of our universe. It's the beginning of time the beginning of space, the beginning of matter, as we know it. It's the inauguration of the universe, the inauguration. And and since this is the inauguration, the very beginning of the universe, and since God created it, we can logically conclude that God existed prior to the universe. He existed prior to it. Genesis records the beginning of everything except God himself. He was already there. And that leads us to another question. Where did God begin? Where did he come from? And the answer is, he's eternal. He doesn't have a starting date. No date of death or anything like that. We only think in terms of time. We're so time bound. That's how we think. We started here. We ended here. God's not like that. He's always been. He is now and always will be. Now Moses, who wrote Genesis, also wrote a psalm. You might not know that. He wrote one of the psalms. It's the oldest psalm there is. It's Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the world. Interesting how he says that. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now here the creation is presented as if the Lord birthed it. So it's this great word picture of God bringing the creation into existence as if a birth had taken place as a mother would her child like Stephanie, our daughter-in-law, bore Zach last night. Same kind of picture, same idea. Think about that. And that's the analogy here. And so God is presented as the everlasting one in Psalm 90. The phrase everlasting, everlasting, one of my favorite phrases in the whole Bible. Very descriptive phrase. Unfortunately, some translations don't get that. You know, sometimes I wonder about translators and their translations. They're, they're very good people, but very good at what they do. But sometimes they don't get it. Like, for example, the Net Bible, which is, off, off, which is good many times, says, you are the eternal God in Psalm 90, verse 2. Well, that's not good enough. And it doesn't sound like from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not very descriptive. It's a very descriptive term, though. He's eternal. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Why? is eternal. They will all become old like a garment. You ever have, you have old clothes and you eventually get holes in them? And people always tell me, because I tend to wear shirts that have holes in them too long, and they say, and I remember Stephen one time told me, Dad, it's time to retire that shirt. You've had it too long. I finally got rid of it, only for his sake. The world will perish, Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 says, but you remain God, and they all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. So the earth compared to an old garment that needs to be changed, God never changes. He always will be. And so before the world was created, there was only God, and that was it. He's eternal. Secondly, he's the triune God. The God of creation is the triune God. Now, the Old Testament places heavy emphasis on the idea of monotheism. God is one God. He's not many gods. And the pagan people mentioned in the Old Testament, they were always, you know, they were always worshiping many gods. And time after time, the Old Testament records words like Deuteronomy 4, 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. He's in one. That's that's in opposition to polytheism, which was rampant in the Old Testament. And is still in many places today. Uh, The God of the Old Testament, who is also the God of the New Testament, is not just another deity. It's not like that. He is sovereign over all. And our monotheistic God, who's taught in Scripture as being one God, is also one God in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not three gods, but one God yet eternally existing in three persons. Why am I bringing all this up? Because it's the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit who participated in the creation of the world. They created the world. God created the world. Look at verse two. It says, "The earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. In verse one, God is involved. In verse two, the spirit of God is involved. Now the word translated spirit in verse two has different means. It can mean wind, it can mean spirit. It can mean breath. And so people wrestle about how do we translate this phrase? A lot of this has to do with the background of the person. A lot of people don't want to translate this as the spirit of God in verse 2. And so, for example, I have an Old Testament uh, translation by a Jewish man named Robert Alter who translated verse 2 like this. He says God's breath was moving over the waters. God's breath. Instead of God's spirit. And and of course you know the Jews don't accept the Trinity. So no one's going to tell me that they're not influenced by their theological beliefs. So is this just some breath of God moving? Is it just a wind blowing over the waters? Is it an impersonal force like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force? Or is it the personal God's spirit? Is it personal? Well, first of all, it's a term connected with God because it says Spirit of God, or however you want to translate it, it's still of God. If we say breath of God moving over the waters, that doesn't make any sense at all. The breath of God moving over the waters? If we say that the wind of God was moving over the waters, that makes a little more sense, but the word moving means hovering. It's hovering, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And for another thing, the people who translate that word that way, they like to translate it as the mighty wind. Or something like that. Well, that's an illegitimate translation. There, you can't translate it that way because it has to do with God, not the. There's another word for mighty, and, and this that's not there, and there's no warrant for that translation. In addition, there's 18 other occurrences in, in the Old Testament where the phrase "spirit of God" is used, and none of them mean wind or mighty wind. For example, Exodus 31:3, it talks about a man named Bezalel who was God had gifted to build the tabernacle, he, he could do all these kind of things that God had given him this ability, and it says he was filled with the Spirit of God, not the wind of God, not, him, not a mighty wind or anything like that. So the preferred translation in Genesis 1-2 is the Spirit of God, big S, not little s, which wouldn't make any sense either. And so what is the Spirit of God doing at creation? He's hovering over the surface of the waters, hovering. Now, it doesn't say anything else about what he's doing. It's just hovering is what it says. And in some, in other, in some way, he's, the Spirit is active in creation. The same word for moving or hovering is used in Deuteronomy 32.11. That's the verse you want to look at. It says there, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. It's the same word, moving in Genesis 1-2. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, God spread his wings and caught them, he carrying them on his pinions. It's talking about the Lord watching over the, his people in the wilderness. Just like an eagle watches over her young, the Lord is watching over his people. And in the same way, the unformed earth is under the care of the Spirit who hovers over it, ensuring its development. And we don't know much else about this. We we do also know from Scripture that the Son of God is active in creation. So we have God, the Father, we have the Spirit, we have the Son of God. Now, where does it say that in Genesis 1? Well, it doesn't, although I've heard some unique takes on this where people say and it says and God said so that's the word of God who's Christ but that's not what it's saying right here and so but we know from the New Testament that Christ himself participated in the in uh, in creation John 1 1 1 for example John 1 1 in the beginning again what beginning the same beginning as Genesis 1 1 so we ask the question did Christ exist prior to creation yes it says in the beginning was the word he's been here The Word who is Christ is already existing prior to the creation of the world. He's always existed. Not part of the creation, by the way. Not a created being, either. He's always been here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And so, we know that God existed prior to creation. Christ existed prior to creation. John 1, 3. All things came into being through Him, through Christ. It always says through or by the agency and creation in Christ was. All things came into being through Christ, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Christ is involved in creation. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. And we exist through him. Again, Christ being involved in creation with that word by is through Christ. It was by Christ that the world was created. Colossians 1.16, for by him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. All things have been created through him and for him. Now, if you're wondering, why are we on this planet? We're here for one purpose, one main purpose. We're here for him. Not here for us. That's the problem everybody has. We think we're here for us, but we're actually here for him. That's our purpose for being here. Hebrews 1:2, in these last days God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. So when you consult the Bible, the entire Bible, it becomes obvious that creation creation is the activity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The God of creation is the triune God. Thirdly, the God of creation is the all-powerful God. Why do I say he's all-powerful? Well, look what he did in six days. Who does this? Who can do this? Nobody, only God. And there are two main words used to describe creation. And that is the word created in verse 1, verse 21, verse 27. The other word is made is what, is what we're going to look at. But the word created means just that. It's a good translation. It means created. And God is always the subject of this verb, never man, when it's used. It's always God who creates something. It describes the activity of creating something new or fresh or perfect. The other word is made. Verse, verse 7, verse 16, 25, 26, 31. I think that's all in your notes. Try to put a lot of this in your notes so you can have quick reference to it. The word is typically translated to make or do. It's a word used all over the place. In the Old Testament, the subject of the verb can either be God or man. And Genesis 1, it's clearly used of God because man wasn't there. God created man. So as you read through Genesis 1, these words are used interchangeably. God created, God made. That's blatantly obvious as you read through the chapter. It's also blatantly obvious that the, that the world God created and brought into existence, he did so without any pre-existing materials. He had nothing to work with at all. And that's, that idea is based on the whole context. Not from one word, but the whole context. There's a Latin term used to describe it. You've probably heard it before. Sex nihilo. Meaning, out of nothing, from nothing. In other words, God created this world from nothing. Imagine this. There was nothing except God. And then there was something, the universe. God created this. And when a person decides to build a house, he has materials to work with. He gets materials to work with. He can't build a house unless he gets the materials. It's impossible. He doesn't create a house out of nothing. So he gets the materials. He he calls the concrete company to supply the concrete. He gets wiring for electricity. <clears throat> he gets plumbing materials. He gets windows and doors, and then he puts all this together and begins to build the house. But God had no pre-existing materials. <clears throat> Nothing. And then he brought this universe into creation. Amazing. Hebrews 11.3. Through faith, we understand that the words, worlds, rather, were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen, the things which we see were not made out of the things which do appear. In other words, no pre-existing materials. There was no heavens and earth until he made them. There was no plant life, no animals, no celestial bodies, no sea life, no people until he made them. Amazingly, he brought all this out of nothing. If you want to know what real power is, read Genesis 1. This is the all-powerful God. John one three again. All things, all things came into being through him. How many things? All things did everything. First John. I love Romans rather. I love Romans four seventeen. What a great verse. Romans four seventeen is talking about Abraham in his old age, hundred years old or so, and and then Sarah past childbearing age and not able to have children, and yet Romans four seventeen says speaks of God who gives. It says who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. He's able to call into being that which does not exist. Only God can do this. St. Augustine wrote a book called Confessions uh, centuries ago, and he says there about God's creation, he says, For you created them, you created all things, from nothing, not from your own substance or from some matter not created by yourself or already in existence, but from matter which you created at one and the same time as the things that you made from it, since there was no integral of time before you gave form to this formless matter. Amazing. God created everything with no preexisting materials. That's power. So how did he create the world? How did he actually do it? What was the actual, actual method that he used? Well, I think you probably already figured it out if you're a Bible reader and you've read Genesis. Let's, let's go over what this says. Look at verse 3. And and God said, Let there be light. Verse 6 Then God said, Let there be an expanse. Verse 9 Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11 Did you notice the pattern? Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14 Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20 Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man. So how did God make and create? Did it through his word, his spoken word. He literally spoke the world, the universe into existence. Amazing. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9 says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was done. What great words. He spoke, and it was done. Finished. Creation finished. He commanded it, and it stood fast. Hebrews eleven three. 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 5. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. Spoken word of God, so powerful. That's how God brought this world into existence. Go with me to verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving or hovering over the, the surface of the waters. Now verse 2 technically should read it like this, now the earth was formless and void, and your translation you may say that or it may say and, the best translation is now the earth was formless and void because the intent of this grammar is that it's giving us background information about what's going to happen in verse 3. It's describing the original condition of the earth, the circumstances of the earth at that time. It's an explanation of things at that time in the, in the creation process. And then what is the condition of the earth in verse 2? It was formless and void. Now, let me state here at the outset, we're not promoting a gap theory here. We deny the gap theory. We're not going to promote that. We don't believe in it. We think it's wrong. The, word, the words here, formless and void, basically mean a wasteland and empty a wasteland and empty. And there are a couple of, there's some references in the Old Testament that that help us to understand what that means. For example, Jeremiah 4.23 sheds some light on this. In that chapter, Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah is greatly distraught over the Babylonian destruction of Judah. Devastation everywhere. He is anxious, distraught about it. And so in verse 23, he says, Jeremiah says, I looked on the earth, I looked, there all around me. Behold, it was formless and void, And I looked at the heavens and they had no light. Doesn't it sound awful awful like like Genesis chapter 1? It does because he's he's choosing to use this language from Genesis 1-2. That's why he said this. And so, Genesis 1-2 describes the wasteland that Judah would become due to the Babylonian invasion. That's what he's saying here. Basically, Jeremiah is saying that Judah, because of their sin, would become like the earth was before God said, Let there be light. It'd be like a wasteland. There's nothing really developed there at all. It's, it's a wasteland. This helps us to understand the terms formless and void. Now, Isaiah 34, also uses that kind of language when it speaks of God's judgment on Edom. Verse 11 says, God will stretch over Edom the measuring line of formlessness and the plumb line of emptiness. Similar words. So Isaiah and Jeremiah are describing the reverse of what happened in Genesis 1:2. the reverse of it. In Genesis 1, God is taking an undeveloped planet and he's giving it over, over the days, form and shape and life. It's taking him six days to do this. And in Isaiah and Jeremiah, judgment is falling and everything is becoming a wasteland and empty. That is an echo of Genesis 1-2 in reverse. But understand there's no judgment happening in Genesis 1-2. The judgment was happening in Isaiah and Jeremiah, but not in Genesis. This is a world being created here. Nothing being destroyed. So the point is this. Genesis 1-2 is describing the early stage of creation on day one. God is creating. There's no interference. God is creating. The earth was a wasteland, not yet developed. It's dark. It's watery. It talks about the surface of the deep. That has to do with the deep water on earth. That's how the earth appeared on the first day of creation, early in the day. There's water everywhere covering the earth. It's deep water everywhere. But the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It says. Doing his part, he's trying to ensure, he's seeking to ensure the future development of the planet. He will ensure that. It won't stay unformed, it won't stay unfilled. It's going to be filled, it's going to be formed, it's going to be populated, it's going to happen. In verse 3, God breaks through and says, breaks through the darkness and he says, let there be light. And he does his work of creation over six days. Now, a way to understand this, verse 2, is by using an illustration of a potter's wheel. How many of you have seen a potter's wheel? Sandy used to have a potter's wheel. I saw that for years, and I think uh, Nate, one of our friends, wanted it, and she gave it to him. She used to make all kinds of pottery. She would she would put together, they'd have all these beautiful bowls and cups and all, all over the place she would make. And what she would do is she would take a, a lump of clay, unshapen clay, kind of a blob of clay, and then she'd put it on the wheel and work the wheel with her foot, and then she'd put her hands around it, and she'd, work with it and form a perfectly a re, a perfectly formed bowl at the end. That was her creation. That's what she would do. And you could tell what it was. She did a beautiful job. You could look at it and say, wow, this is incredible. Now, if I gave, if I tried that, it would look like an unshapen blob when I got through. No one could tell anything. But it took time for her to do this, time for her to shape this and fashion it. And the same is true of God on day one of creation. He could have just... And in a blink of an eye, he could have created everything, but he decided he chose to do it in six days, to shape it and fashion it. Now, I want to be clear on verse 2, so let me quote some other people about this verse. John Calvin said this, Moses simply intends to assert that the world was not perfected at its very commencement in the manner in which it is now seen. In other words, Calvin says, verse 2 is saying that, Moses is saying, this is the very beginning He's not finished with his creation. He's developing the creation. Weston Fields, who wrote a book about the gap theory back in 1976, says this. Genesis 1-2 describes the earth in an unfinished state during the first part of the first day of creation. Unfinished state. It's going to happen, but not yet. My favorite quote is Martin Luther, of all people. He says, the plain and simple meaning of what Moses here says. By the way, if you notice the guys from the past all say Moses said this, they all say Moses said this in Genesis. People today don't say that. They don't believe Moses said it. Martin Luther, the plain and simple meaning of what Moses here says in Genesis 1-2 is that all things that exist were created by God and that at the beginning of the first day there was created a shapeless lump or mass or, on earth, or earth with fog or water. Later, during the remaining time of the first day, he's talking about a six-day creation here. This is the first day. God put it into light so that the light of the day was shining and the shapeless heaven and earth could be seen. This was not unlike a shapeless crude seed from which things can be generated and produced. So verse 2 is the condition of the earth before it was made suitable for human life or any kind of life. It's on its way to being created, but it's like this when it starts. Now, there was a theory promoted in the 19th century by a guy named Thomas Chalmers. And, he's, and he uh, uh, came up with this idea, or he, he grabbed a hold of this idea, so there's always a history behind the history, called the Gap Theory, we call it the Gap Theory, and then the Schofield Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible, and I have one, with, I just happen to have one with me tonight by accident, by the way, this is the Bible Apostle Paul used, I got this in northern Indiana a long time ago, I still remember I paid $9 for it, somebody was, uh, had lost it somewhere, and they were giving it away, lost and found stuff, and selling it, and I bought it at a... Very special institute I used to go to. I used to read out of the Old Schofield Bible, and I saw the note in there about the gap theory because it popularized it. In fact, I looked at it today. I've got parentheses around it like, yeah, this is what it's all about. That was a long time ago. And so the theory taught that verse, in verse 1, there's a complete creation, finished creation in verse 1, totally finished. And in verse 2, describes a divine judgment that happened on earth. Maybe Satan came in, rebelled against God, and judgment fell on the earth as a result, and it left the earth and covered with water and in darkness and and an all-around mess. And so they say, the Gap people, I'm bringing this up because it's been affected many, many people back in the day, and and probably still some today. They say that verse 2 should read, the earth became formless and void, whereas our translation says it was formless, not became. Do you see the difference? If the earth became formless and void, then why did it become that way? Well, they say it looked formless and shapeless because there must have been judged by God somehow. Some way the world, the creation was ruined at that point. So verse 1, you have a creation. Verse 2, it's ruined. They also like to point to Isaiah forty five eighteen. I know this is a lot of doctrine we're covering tonight. For a proof text, Isaiah forty five eighteen it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it, He established it and did not create it a waste place. He did not create it a waste place, but he he formed it to be inhabited. That waste place is formless in uh, Genesis 1-2. And they say, well, this proves the gap theory. No, it doesn't prove the gap theory, because Isaiah, speaking of God's ultimate purpose in creation, it's going to be, yeah, he started out that way, but it's going to be inhabited, of course. And it was inhabited, and he says that in Genesis chapter 1. So, due to the ruined world in verse 2, according to the gap theorists, it had to be recreated in verses 3 to 31. So, here's what they say Verse 1, there's the original creation. Verse 2, creation is now in a state of chaos. Verse 3, new creation begins. You have two creations. A lot of people were taught this in Bible schools, seminaries, all over the place. I probably was taught it, don't even remember, but I got it underlined here in this old Schofield Bible. And uh, it hurt probably a lot of people, led them astray. Now, why? Why this absurd theory? Well, why did it come about? It's because the evolutionists were saying the earth was billions of years old. Billions of, and so the Christians felt intimidated. Here's the key word. Christians felt intimidated by this subject. And so they said, we've got to do something. And they didn't want to appear ignorant because, after all, they perceived these people to be science. This is science, they thought. And we'll talk about that later on. And so they created this, which allows them to have billions of years of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. The gap theory. There's a gap between 1-1 and 1-2, billions of years of time, you can, and that way you can hang out with the evolutionists and everybody can have, be one big happy family, they thought. And there are various versions of the gap theory, including, my favorite, a pre-Adamic race of men with, that don't have any souls. So it gets pretty weird. There are several reasons why the gap theory fails, but here, just let me name a few. Number one, the word translate was is correct because the translate it became is wrong on linguistic grounds. That's not a good translation. Secondly, it's inconsistent with a six-day creation because there's two creations here, right? And thirdly, it's inconsistent with God's evaluation that his creation was good because the gap theory says, well, the creation was a failure originally. And God says, no, it was good. Why Why is God creating the world and then at the end of it, it he gets, he gets destroyed in verse 2, and then he says, oh, it's a good creation. doesn't make any sense at all. Let me tell you this. Any kind of theory that tries to make Genesis 1 compatible with a worldly philosophy is a compromise. It's always going to end badly for us every time. True science. I'm going to talk more about this with the help of our good Dr. West over here. True science lines up with the Bible, not against it, since God is the master of science scientists and guess who established the laws of science true science god did don't ever you don't have to buy into all this craziness out there that people think you know that you have to buy into we'll talk about that later don't think you have to compromise the truth of scripture with some idea somebody came up with that sounds good to a lot of people we'll address that later god never lost control of creation he never did do, you, do we really think that he started creating the world and, verse, and right away, here comes Satan, I better, oh no, it's all over with. I've got to rearrange the plan here. That's ridiculous. Satan didn't come in and destroy anything. God's powerful. That's what we're saying here. God's all-powerful. He can take nothing and turn it into something, an entire universe. He needs help from no one, and no one can stand in his way. God's all-powerful. Well, we'll continue next week. Pick it up next week as we continue the study in Genesis chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for, your, for the God of creation. We're grateful that you created the world, Lord, that we uh, know the God of creation, the God of creation who saved us also. He's also the God of salvation that gave us new life in Christ, that gave purpose to our life. We're thankful, Lord, to know you. We're thankful that you brought us into your fold and to yourself, to your son. We pray that we'll glorify you in our lives, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.